423, chapters 31 and 32 of the Count of Monte Cristo. Book talk begins at 421. Welcome to Craftlit. The podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 433, Buzz Buzz, Drip Drip. This episode of Craftlit is brought to you by its listeners. Many thanks and much gratefulness to all of the listeners who have gone over to patreon.com slash craftlet and pledged their support to the show. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Well, hello. How are you? I hope you are fine. I am talking to you from a busy week and a humid week and a drippy week, but we're keeping busy. It being summertime and summer doing that campy kind of thing. Unfortunately, not the campy like a show campy, but just campy like, oh, we have to take you to that thing now. Okay. But the kids are having a great time. I have one week this week, the entire summer, where they are both doing something at the same time. (sighs) Yes, that was the sound of silence. And then it's over and done. And then we go back to the crazy. But one of the crazies is this week, the chapters. Actually, not just this week, this week and I think the next two episodes all have ridiculously long chapters. And so you may be saying to yourself, Heather, why are you doing two chapters if they are ridiculously long? And the answer is, well, chapter 31 is very long and chapter 32 is really quite short. And chapter 33 is longer than chapter 31 and chapter 34 is about the same. So 32 coming in the middle of all of these really long chapters 31 was really the only one I could put it with. I wasn't going to just release a a 15-minute long chapter, which seemed kind of silly. So it works well. It puts us in a good position for the next episode. And so I decided to do it. That being said, the audio for the Crafty Chat this week went wonky on my end. I understand why now, and that has been fixed. Thankfully, actually during the course of the live stream this week, we figured out a lot of stuff, including how to improve the video quite a bit. So next week should be great, but I don't really have any audio to play for you. What I do have, though, is a couple of really adorable pictures on the website because Dawn got a new doggy and he's a special needs doggy. He's got a cleft palate and he is the most adorable little guy. He's five months old and he's just so sweet. He's very, very licky and huggy. And he knew how to look at the camera. So, you know, he's, he's on it. So if you go by craftlit.com slash four, two, three, you will see a couple of pictures from the live stream, but no audio. I want to play you a quick voicemail that I got from Brenda, our resident postal carrier, who <laughs> had a hot day. Here's Brenda. Hi, Heather. This is Brenda, the mail lady. I'm Priscilla Bjorn on Ravelry, and I am in my mail truck, and I'm at work. And I just had this guy say to me, and it is like 106 heat index today, and he said, are you keeping warm? 
and I thought, oh, my God. But that immediately reminded me of when Edmund, a few chapters back, went to Caderousse's kind of pathetic little inn, and the dog comes out just gangbusters after Edmund, and Caderousse says, oh, he does not bite. He only barks. And when I heard that, I thought, holy cow, people have been saying that forever. The more things change, the more they stay the same. (laughs) And I think that's why this is such an awesome book, because we can totally relate to these characters. There's always going to be some pathetic, annoying guy like Caderousse and and somebody who just got the short end of the stick like Edmund. So, yes, relevant indeed. So, book chat. We need to get a move on with today's chapters. Once I sat down and really started researching all of the things in these chapters that cried out to be researched, I realized that (sighs) we could probably do a complete month-long seminar just on all of the facts that Dumas drops in this particular chapter, especially chapter 31 in, in particular, but also a little bit of 32. There's so much, and we might get a sixth of it if I'm lucky. Things that are getting dropped that are terminology that we just don't use very often. But beyond the terminology, this is a chapter that is so rich in historical and classical sub-references that I don't know what happened. I don't know if Dumas had just recently gone on a reading spree or had visited a museum or had gone to a really great dinner where they sat around drinking and a bunch of philosophers were talking. I have no idea what happened, but all of a sudden here, it's like, boom. Hey, let's witness the benefit of a classical education, shall we? <laughs> and of course, I had to look all this stuff up. Some of it I, I'd heard of, but I didn't really know details. So first off, we need to place ourselves in time. We know that the end of the previous chapter, chapter 30, is really the end of the first part of the book. Kind of psychologically, that part's done. Nice, sweet, kind, trusting Edmond is gone. He was replaced several times by Abbe Busoni and by the clerk from the bank, the Englishman. And it occurred to me while I was working on these chapters for today's episode that The stories that we hear Busoni or the Clark, the stories that we hear him tell about himself, I should be keeping track of these, or we should be keeping track of these on a Google Doc or something, because what gets said about these various personas' pasts are kind of interesting. And Dumas is being a lot more careful about them than I initially noticed. So... Mm, keep your ears open because stuff's afoot. We are now in the future, the beginning of the second section of the book. We are no longer in the presence of Edmond Dantes at all as this section starts, which kind of threw me off my game the first time that I read this. It was exactly like my response when I read the Golden Compass books and I got to the second book and sat there and said, well, wait a minute, where, where are the kids that I like? They're not here. And I didn't read the book for a while because I was so upset and missed them so much. I felt kind of the same way at the beginning of this. It's a little bit of a letdown. We're not with Edmond. 
We are with some other people. And we are in the future. He gives us a year at the beginning of this that it is 1838. And that so didn't help me at all. So I went back and I did some math. So it was 1815 when Edmund was put in prison. And he was, what, somewhere between 18, 19, 20, 21, somewhere around there. Let's say 19, just for ease. So 1815, he goes in. He's 19 years old. 14 years later, he comes out. So now he's 33, and it is 1829. We are now at 1838, so we're nine years later. So it's about, what, 23 years since he went to prison. Now, in that time, Caderousse has filled us in with some important information. And to this end, in a couple more episodes, I will be posting a graphic for you that you can download. It's easily found on websites if you want to go look for it yourself. Actually, there's several of them. I've just downloaded the one that I thought was best. And it's a, a complete character plot of the Count of Monte Cristo because from this point on, it only gets bigger, a lot bigger. This is like on a, a legal-sized piece of paper, JPEG, and it's like six-point font. It's crazy. But we have gotten some information from Caderousse. We know that Danglar married a banker's daughter, he got that job because Morel recommended him, and then he was such a poop to Morel later. But he married the banker's daughter, she died, and then he married a widow, Madame de Nargon. Now, this is important. She is the daughter of Monsieur Serfieux, who is the king's chamberlain. So Danglars is like one degree of separation away from the king right now, which is pretty cool. It's just unfortunate that it's Danglars who is... And then we found out that de Vifor, he married Madame de Saint-Marin. We met her before at her betrothal feast that was the parallel to Edmond and Mercedes. And then we found out that Mercedes married Fernand. Now, we did hear very clearly that Fernand came back from fighting. She was heartbroken, thinking that she had lost both Edmond and her cousin, Fernand, and he kind of misread her happiness to see him. Didn't quite get that it was love because now she's got somebody that she knows and not so much love like, ooh, baby, I love you. And he went after her again and she waited 18 months after Edmond left and then she got married. So they got married sometime around 1817-ish. And I say ish because it's a little unclear whether she was waiting 18 months after Fernand asked her or 18 months after Edmond left, which would be a time difference. Either way, they got married around 1817, 1818. Edmond proved himself to be valuable to the country, and he received a captainship in the army eight years after Edmond was imprisoned. And then he was made Comte de Morcerf. M-O-R-C-E-R-F, which means Mercedes would be a countess. Now, we understand she has elevated herself through education and, and classes, and she's learned the fine art of being a wealthy woman at this time. And they're living in Paris, de Vifor is living in Paris, and Danglars is living in Paris. That gets us up to speed on our people, and that gives us the names that we will need in the future. Monsieur Servieux, the king's chamberlain, father-in-law to Danglar, de Vifor, his family that he married into was important. It was also important, the Saint-Marin family, and then Mercedes and Fernand now no longer have whatever their last name was before. 
they are the de Morcerf family, the Count and Countess. Now, when we take up in 1838, Dumas starts sub-referencing tons of stuff that was popular at the time. And I'm going to go through, in the same order that they appear in the chapter, several historical events, both within the history world, but also historical events in the literary world, things that happened within the world of letters. And then there are a few classical references that kind of matter, and and then we're going to listen to the chapter. So first off, there's a reference to the capture of Algiers, and that's in 1830. This was really interesting. In 1830, the French government, using as an excuse, and I put excuse in quotation marks because it was sort of an excuse and sort of not, they used piracy as an excuse for going down and taking Algiers. Now, why does this matter? Well, first off, piracy was a real problem in the Mediterranean, and Algiers was a port that was frequented by pirates. These are not pirates like you see nowadays, Somalian pirates, necessarily. But you will hear a story about piracy at the time that is just as bad. So people we meet, not so bad. People you hear about, really bad. And Dumas was not making that up. So that's number one. Number two, the capture of Algiers began France's occupation of parts of Northern Africa. So colonization began in earnest for France. There is a reference to Fenimore Cooper and Captain Marriott. I had heard of Fenimore Cooper. I had not heard of Captain Marriott. Both of them interesting in this respect. James Fenimore Cooper is probably most known for books like The Last of the Mohicans, The Leather Stocking Tales. And a friend of mine from high school went back and read for the first time all of Fenimore Cooper and said he was shocked at how really good the books were. And yes, they were definitely of a time. And yes, they were kind of hard to swallow in some respects. But he said it was mostly because of the nicknames. Like the guy in The Last of the Mohicans, his nickname is Natty Bumpo. Which, you know, for us these days, we kind of go, really? But it'd be like him being called Han Solo. You know, it was it was supposed to be cool back then, I guess. But I remember my friend talking about how Fenimore Cooper really understood how to do exciting stories, like both suspense and action, which I find very interesting because other people find his books to be kind of slow. Then I started reading up about pirate stories because the reference to Fenimore Cooper and the reference to Captain Marriott come at a, a point in the book where they're talking about piracy. And I thought, James Fenimore Cooper? What now? He wrote pirate stories. In fact, he and Captain Marriott, a real British naval commander who also happened to write and was a friend of Dickens. The two of them between 1827 and 1836 had started putting out these naval fiction adventure books. Probably the most famous of Fenimore Cooper's is called Red Rover. And this was really interesting because one of the main characters is an African. And one of the main female characters is Black as well. Now, there's an interesting history to African sailors in America. And we've we've talked about this before. There's a, what is it, the the interesting narrative of the life of Ulado Akiano. This guy was a sailor at the time of the American Revolution. He managed to avoid slavery as an adult by becoming a sailor. 
Now, if you were sailing officially, you know, you had a captain and a crew and all this stuff, you got papers that proved that you were free and not just free, but like in the difference between the white collar world and the blue collar world, this was a white collar thing. You had skills that were important. And they did this because if the ship was boarded, you don't want to lose your sailors. And who's going to get taken first? The black guys. If you're off the coast of America during this time, that's who would get taken. So you have papers proving that you're real, proving that you're free. Awesome. This is also how Frederick Douglass escaped slavery. He was able to borrow somebody's naval uniform, and that's how he got out. So the ripple effect of these kinds of stories, and again, this is in 1827 that Fenimore Cooper wrote Red Rover. It's big. And now I'm going to go read the book because I'm really, really interested. I did read, however, that the the end of the book is not such a happy ending for the two African-American characters. However, there's that part of me that says, well, yeah, because it's an adventure story, but it's probably not a fantasy. And 1827, if the ending were truly happy for the two of them, I would be wondering how realistic it was. So I don't know that that's really... A criticism. I'm going to have to go read the book and, and see how I respond to the end. But there is no version of it on LibriVox right now. So that's kind of interesting, too. There's also a reference to Pope Leo XII. This was the Pope from 1823 to 1829. He was really, really conservative. And so during the time of piracy in the Mediterranean, he cracked down. He cracked down on everybody, but he also cracked down on infractions of any sort. There's a reference to the giant Adamaster. Now, this name could come from Latin, which would mean um, the arrival of Adam, or I think more likely, it's a reference to the Greek word for untamed. This giant, the giant Adamaster, shows up in a Portuguese epic from 1572. And I, I know I will pronounce this wrong because I don't remember Portuguese pronunciation, but Os Luciadas is the name of this epic work. And it sounds pretty cool, but there's statuary around for this giant Adamaster, and he was, you know, big guy guarding stuff. So there's a phrase, being as wise as Nestor and as cautious as Ulysses. Okay, cautious as Ulysses, you probably get. Odysseus, Ulysses, very cautious. That's the reason he's the one who made it home from the Trojan War. Nestor was considered the wisest of the Greeks at Troy. So he was older, wise, and recognized as such. There's a reference to Raoul in The Huguenot. Les Huguenots is an opera. It came out in 1836. You see how much stuff is just being dogpiled on in 1830, 1836, 1835. Raoul in The Huguenot, you may remember us talking, uh, when was it? So in the, within the last couple of years, Millet, who married the Countess, Effie, who had been married to Ruskin, Millet painted a picture called The Huguenot, and it's a, of a man who's pulling an armband off of his arm. It's like a, a white armband off of his arm. And the woman that he is embracing is trying to put it on his arm. This was a Catholic badge she was trying to put on him, but he's a Protestant, and he's trying to pull it off to say, no, I'm not going to hide. I'm going to be a Protestant. And the whole thing was there was this big anti-Protestant 
backlash in France. And kind of the apex of the whole thing was this massacre. So there's this big massacre. There's an opera, Les Huguenots, and in this opera, there are two lovers, Raoul, a Protestant, and Valentine, a Catholic. And it's an opera. Does it end well for anybody? You can probably guess. But you will hear a reference to Raoul in the Huguenot. There is an obscure reference to a little man in a blue cloak. A lot of people think that this is Napoleon, and it's not. This is Monsieur Champion. He was well known at the time for wearing a blue cloak. He was a jeweler and a philanthropist. And I think we mentioned him earlier, but he's, he's a really interesting character. I'm going to link to him from the show notes because the only place I found information on him was in an old turn-of-the-last-century book that's been scanned into Google Books. So we've almost lost all of our information on this guy. So that's kind of cool. Ambrosia on the table of Jupiter. This was served by the goddess of youth. Her name is Hebe, H-E-B-E, and there's the little crown over the E's. She's the daughter of Hera and Zeus, or the Roman pantheon, but she's the one who brought the ambrosia and nectar to the table. And I think everything else will fall into place as you go along. We switch location. We switch times. So just listen. You will recognize some people. You will think you recognize names. You probably do. And you will have some very, very serious guesses as to who some people might be. So these are two chapters that when I was going through the book the first time, I went over these a couple of times because so much happens. They're very dense. So this will, this will keep you entertained for a while. All right, let's go ahead and listen to chapters 31 and 32 of The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas, read for us by David Clark. Chapter 31, Italy, Sinbad the Sailor. Towards the beginning of the year 1838, two young men belonging to the First Society of Paris, the Vicomte Albert de Morcef and the Baron Franz d'Epinay, were at Florence. They had agreed to see the carnival at Rome that year, and that France, who for the last three or four years had inhabited Italy, should act as Cicerone to Albert. As it is no inconsiderable affair to spend the carnival at Rome, especially when you have no great desire to sleep on the Piazza del Popolo or the Campo Vaccino, they wrote to Signor Pastrini, the proprietor of the Hotel de Londres, Piazza di Spagna, to reserve comfortable apartments for them. Signor Pastrini replied that he had only two rooms and a parlour on the third floor, which he offered at the low charge of a Louis Pardim. They accepted this offer, but wishing to make the best use of the time that was left, Albert started for Naples. As for France, he remained at Florence, and after having passed a few days in exploring the paradise of the Caschine and spending two or three evenings at the houses of the Florentine nobility, he took a fancy into his head, having already visited Corsica, the cradle of Bonaparte, to visit Elba, the waiting place of Napoleon. One evening, he cast off the painter of a sailboat from the iron ring that secured it to the dock at Leghorn, wrapped himself in his coat, and lay down and said to the crew, 
To the island of Elba. The boat shot out of the harbour like a bird, and the next morning Franz disembarked at Porto Ferraio. He traversed the island after having followed the traces which the footsteps of the giant have left, and re-embarked for Marciana. Two hours after he again landed at Pianosa, where he was assured that red partridges abounded. The sport was bad, France only succeeded in killing a few partridges, and like every unsuccessful sportsman, he returned to the boat very much out of temper. "'Ah, if your excellency chose,' said the captain, "'you might have capital sport.' "'Where?' "'Do you see that island?' continued the captain, pointing to a conical pile rising from the Indigo Sea. "'Well, what is this island?' "'The island of Monte Cristo. "'But I have no permission to shoot over this island. "'Your Excellency does not require a permit, "'for the island is uninhabited.' "'Ah, indeed,' said the young man. "'A desert island in the midst of the Mediterranean "'must be a curiosity. "'It is very natural. "'This island is a mass of rocks "'and does not contain an acre of land capable of cultivation.' To whom does this island belong? To Tuscany. What game shall I find there? Thousands of wild goats. Who live upon the stones, I suppose, said Franz, with an incredulous smile. No, but by browsing the shrubs and trees that grow out of the crevices of the rocks. Where can I sleep? On shore in the grottoes, or on board in your cloak. Besides, "'If your excellency pleases, we can leave as soon as you like. "'We can sail as well by night as by day, "'and if the wind drops, we can use our oars.' "'As France had sufficient time, "'and his apartments at Rome were not yet available, "'he accepted the proposition. "'Upon his answer in the affirmative, "'the sailors exchanged a few words together in a low tone. "'Well,' asked he, "'what now? "'Is there any difficulty in the way?' No, replied the captain, but we must warn your excellency that the island is an infected port. What do you mean? Monte Cristo, although uninhabited, yet serves occasionally as a refuge for the smugglers and pirates who come from Corsica, Sardinia, and Africa, and if it becomes known that we have been there, "'We shall have to perform a quarantine for six days on our return to Leghorn.' "'The deuce! That puts a different face on the matter. Six days? Why, that's as long as the Almighty took to make the world. "'Too long I wait. Too long. "'But who will say your Excellency has been to Monte Cristo?' "'Oh, I shall not,' cried Franz. "'Nor I! Nor I!' chorused the sailors. Then steer for Monte Cristo. The captain gave his orders. The helm was put up, and the boat was soon sailing in the direction of the island. France waited until all was in order, and when the sail was filled and the four sailors had taken their places, three forward and one at the helm, he resumed the conversation. Gaetano, said he to the captain, you tell me Monte Cristo serves as a refuge for pirates who are, it seems to me, a very different kind of game from the goats. Yes, your excellency, and it is true. 
I knew there were smugglers, but I thought that since the capture of Algier and the destruction of the Regency, pirates existed only in the romances of Cooper and Captain Marriott. Your Excellency is mistaken. There are pirates like the bandits, who were believed to have been exterminated by Pope Leo XII, and who yet every day rob travellers at the gates of Rome. Has not your Excellency heard that the French charge d'affaires was robbed six months ago with five hundred paces of velletri? Oh, yes, I heard that. Well, then, if, like us, your Excellency lived at Leghorn, you would hear from time to time that a little merchant vessel or an English yacht that was expected at Bastia, at Porto Ferraio, or at Civita Vecchia, has not arrived, no one knows what has become of it, but doubtless it has struck on a rock and foundered. Now this rock it has met has been a long and narrow boat, manned by six or eight men, who have surprised and plundered it. Some dark and stormy night near some desert and gloomy island, as bandits plunder a carriage in the recesses of a forest. But, asked Franz, who lay wrapped in his cloak at the bottom of the boat, why do not those who have been plundered complain to the French, Sardinian, of Tuscan governments? Why? said Gaetano with a smile. Yes, why? Because in the first place they transfer from the vessel to their own boat whatever they think worth taking. Then they bind the crew hand and foot. They attach to everyone's neck a four-and-twenty-pound ball. A large hole is chopped in the vessel's bottom, and then they leave her. At the end of ten minutes, the vessel begins to roll heavily and settle down. First one gunnel goes under, then the other. Then they lift and sink again, and both go under at once. All at once there's a noise like a cannon. That's the air blowing up the deck. Soon the water rushes out of the scupper holes like a whale spouting. The vessel gives a last groan, spins around and around, and disappears, forming a vast whirlpool in the ocean. And then all is over so that in five minutes nothing but the eye of God can see the vessel where she lies at the bottom of the sea. Do you understand now? said the captain. Why no complaints are made to the government, and why the vessel never reaches port? It is probable that if Gaetano had related the previous to proposing the expedition, Franz would have hesitated. But now that they had started, he thought it would be cowardly to draw back. He was one of those men who do not rashly court danger. But if danger presents itself, combat it with the most unalterable coolness. Calm and resolute, he treated any peril as he would an adversary in a duel, calculated its probable method of approach, retreated, if at all, as a point of strategy, and not from cowardice, was quick to see an opening for attack, and won victory at a single thrust. Bah, said he, I have travelled through Sicily and Calabria, I have sailed two months in the archipelago, and yet I never saw even the shadow of a bandit or a pirate. I did not tell your excellency this to deter you from your project, replied Gaetano. But you questioned me, and I have answered, that's all. Yes, and your conversation is most interesting, and as I wish to enjoy it as long as possible, steer for Monte Cristo.
The wind blew strongly. The boat made six or seven knots an hour, and they were rapidly reaching the end of their voyage. As they drew near, the island seemed to lift from the sea, and the air was so clear that they could already distinguish the rocks heaped on one another, like cannonballs in an arsenal, with green bushes and trees growing in the crevices. As for the sailors, although they appeared perfectly tranquil, yet it was evident that they were on the alert, and that they carefully watched the glassy surface over which they were sailing, and on which a few fishing boats, with their white sails, were alone visible. They were within fifteen miles of Monte Cristo, when the sun began to set behind Corsica, whose mountains appeared against the sky, showing their rugged peaks in bold relief. This mass of rock, like the giant Adamastor, rose dead ahead, a formidable barrier, and intercepting the light that gilded its massive peaks, so that the voyagers were in shadow. Little by little, the shadow rose higher, and seemed to drive before it the last rays of the expiring day. At last, the reflection rested on the summit of the mountain, where it paused an instant, like the fiery crest of a volcano. Then gloom gradually covered the summit, as it had covered the base, and the island now only appeared to be a grey mountain that grew continually darker. Half an hour after, the night was quite dark. Fortunately, the mariners were used to these latitudes, and knew every rock in the Tuscan archipelago. For in the midst of this obscurity, France was not without uneasiness. Corsica had long since disappeared, and Monte Cristo itself was invisible. But the sailors seemed like the lynx to see in the dark, and the pilot who steered did not evince the slightest hesitation. An hour had passed since the sun had set, when Franz fancied he saw at a quarter of a mile to the left a dark mass, but he could not precisely make out what it was, and fearing to excite the mirth of the sailors by mistaking a floating cloud for land, he remained silent. Suddenly a great light appeared on the strand Land might resemble a cloud, but the fire was not a meteor. "'What is this light?' asked he. "'Hush,' said the captain. "'It is a fire.' "'But you told me the island was uninhabited.' "'I said there were no fixed habitations on it, "'but I said also that it served sometimes as a harbour for smugglers.' "'And for pirates?' "'And for pirates.' returned Gaetano, repeating Franz's words. "'It is for that reason I have given orders to pass the island, for, as you see, the fire is behind us.' "'But this fire,' continued Franz, "'it seems to me rather reassuring than otherwise. Men who did not wish to be seen would not light a fire.' "'Oh, that goes for nothing,' said Gaetano. If you can guess the position of the island in the darkness, you will see that the fire cannot be seen from the side or from Pianosa, but only from the sea. You think, then, this fire indicates the presence of unpleasant neighbours? That is what we must find out, returned Gaetano, fixing his eyes on this terrestrial star. How can you find out? You shall see. Gaetano consulted with his companions, and after five minutes' discussion, a manoeuvre was executed which caused the vessel to tack about. They returned the way they had come, and in a few minutes 
the fire disappeared, hidden by an elevation of the land. The pilot again changed the course of the boat, which rapidly approached the island and was soon within fifty paces of it. Gaetano lowered the sail, and the boat came to rest. All this was done in silence, and from the moment that their course was changed, not a word was spoken. Gaetano, who had proposed the expedition, had taken all the responsibility on himself. The four sailors fixed their eyes on him, while they got out their oars and held themselves in readiness to row away, which, thanks to the darkness, would not be difficult. As for Franz, he examined his arms with the utmost coolness. He had two double-barreled guns and a rifle. He loaded them, looking at the priming, and waited quietly. During this time the captain had thrown off his vest and shirt, and secured his trousers round his waist. His feet were naked, so he had no shoes and stockings to take off. After these preparations, he placed his finger on his lips, and lowering himself noiselessly into the sea, swam towards the shore with such precaution that it was impossible to hear the slightest sound. He could only be traced by the phosphorescent line in his wake. This track soon disappeared. It was evident that he had touched the shore. Everyone on board remained motionless for half an hour, when the same luminous track was again observed, and the swimmer was soon on board. "'Well!' exclaimed Franz and the sailors in unison. "'They are Spanish smugglers,' said he. "'They have with them two Corsican bandits.' "'And what are these Corsican bandits doing here with the Spanish smugglers?' "'Alas!' returned the captain with an accent of the most profound pity. "'We ought always to help one another.' Very often the bandits are hard-pressed by the gendarme or cabinieri. Well, they see a vessel and good fellows like us on board. They come and demand hospitality of us. You can't refuse help to a poor hunted devil. We receive them, and for greater security we stand out to sea. This costs us nothing and saves the life, or at least the liberty, of a fellow-creature, who on the first occasion returns the service by pointing out some safe spot where we can land our goods without interruption. Ah, said Franz, then you are a smuggler occasionally, Gattano. Your Excellency, we must leave somehow, returned the other, smiling impenetrably. Then you know the men who are now on Monte Cristo. Oh, yes, we sailors are like Freemasons, and recognize each other by signs. And do you think we have nothing to fear if we land? Nothing at all. Smugglers are not thieves. But these two Corsican bandits, said Franz, calculating the chances of peril. It is not their fault that they are bandits, but that of the authorities. How so? Because they are pursued for having made a stiff as if it was not in Corsican's nature to revenge himself. And what did you mean by having made a stiff? Having assassinated a man? said Franz, continuing his investigation. I mean that they have killed an enemy, which is a very different thing, returned the captain. Well, said the young man, let us demand hospitality of these smuggler and bandits. Do you think they will grant it? "'Without a doubt.' "'How many are they?' 
four and the two bandits make a six. Just our number, so that if they prove troublesome, we shall be able to hold them in check. So for the last time, steer to Monte Cristo. Yes, but your excellency will permit us to take all due precautions. By all means, be as wise as Nestor and as prudent as Ulysses. I do more than permit. I exhort you. Silence, then, said Gaetano. Everyone obeyed. For a man who, like France, viewed his position in its true light, it was a grave one. He was alone in the darkness with sailors whom he did not know and who had no reason to be devoted to him, who knew that he had several thousand francs in his belt and who had often examined his weapons, which were very beautiful, if not with envy, at least with curiosity. On the other hand, he was about to land without any other escort than these men on an island which had indeed a very religious name, but which did not seem to France likely to afford him much hospitality, thanks to the smugglers and bandits. The history of the scuttled vessels, which had appeared improbable during the day, seemed very probable at night. Placed as he was between two possible sources of danger, he kept his eye on the crew and his gun in his hand. The sailors had again hoisted sail, and the vessel was once more cleaving the waves. Through the darkness, Franz, whose eyes were now more accustomed to it, could see the looming shore along which the boat was sailing. And then, as they rounded a rocky point, he saw the fire more brilliant than ever, and about it five or six persons seated. The blaze illumined the sea for a hundred paces around. Gaetano skirted the light, carefully keeping the boat in the shadow. Then, when they were opposite the fire, he steered to the centre of the circle, singing a fishing song, of which his companions sung the chorus. At the first words of the song, the men seated around the fire arose and approached the landing place, their eyes fixed on the boat, evidently seeking to know who the newcomers were and what were their intentions. They soon appeared satisfied and returned, with the exception of one, who remained at the shore to their fire, at which the carcass of a goat was roasting. When the boat was within twenty paces of the shore, the man on the beach, who carried a carbine, presented arms after the manner of a sentinel, and cried, "'Who comes here?' in Sardinian. Franz coolly cocked both barrels. Gaetano then exchanged a few words with this man, which the traveller did not understand, but which evidently concerned him. "'Will your excellency give your name, or remain incognito?' asked the captain. "'My name must rest unknown. "'Merely say I am a Frenchman, travelling for pleasure.' "'As soon as Gaetano had transmitted this answer, "'the sentinel gave an order to one of the men seated round the fire, "'who rose and disappeared among the rocks. "'Not a word was spoken. "'Everyone seemed occupied. "'France, with his disembarkment, the sailors with their sails, the smugglers with their goat. But in the midst of all this carelessness, it was evident that they mutually observed each other. The man who had disappeared returned suddenly on the opposite side to that by which he had left. He made a sign with his head to the sentinel, who, turning to the boat, said, Saccomodi. The Italian Saccomodi is untranslatable. It means at once. Come, enter, you are welcome, and make yourself at home, 
You are the master. It is like that Turkish phrase of Molière's that so astonished the bourgeois gentleman by the number of things implied in its utterance. The sailors did not wait for a second invitation. Four strokes of the oar brought them to land. Gaetano sprang to shore, exchanged a few words with the sentinel, then his comrades disembarked, and lastly came France. One of his guns was swung over his shoulder. Gaetano had the other, and a sailor held his rifle, his dress, half artist, half dandy, did not excite any suspicion, and consequently no disquietude. The boat was moored to the shore, and they advanced a few paces to find a comfortable bivouac. But doubtless, the spot they chose did not suit the smuggler, who filled the post of sentinel, for he cried out, Not that way, if you please. Gaetano faltered an excuse, and advanced to the opposite side, while two sailors kindled torches at the fire to light them on their way. They advanced about thirty paces, and then stopped at a small esplanade surrounded with rocks, in which seats had been cut, not unlike sentry boxes. Around in the crevices of the rocks grew a few dwarf oaks and thick bushes of myrtles. Franz lowered a torch and saw by the mass of cinders that had accumulated that he was not the first to discover this retreat, which was doubtless one of the halting places of the wandering visitors of Monte Cristo. As for his suspicions, once on terra firma, once that he had seen the indifferent if not friendly appearance of his hosts, his anxiety had quite disappeared, or rather at the sight of the goat had turned to appetite. He mentioned this to Gaetano, who replied that nothing could be more easy than to prepare a supper when they had in their boat bread, wine, half a dozen partridges, and a good fire to roast them by. Besides, added he, if the smell of their roast meat tempts you, I will go and offer them two of our birds for a slice. You are a born diplomat, returned Franz. Go and try. Meanwhile the sailors had collected dried sticks and branches with which they made a fire. Franz waited impatiently, inhaling the aroma of the roasted meat, when the captain returned with a mysterious air. Well, said Franz, Anything new? Do they refuse? On the contrary, returned Gaetano. The chief, who was told you were a younger Frenchman, invites you to supper with him. Well, observed Franz, this chief is very polite, and I see no objection. The more so as I bring my share of the supper. Oh, it is not that. He has plenty, and to spare for supper. But he makes a one condition, and rather a peculiar one, before he will receive you at his house. His house? Has he built one here, then? No, but he has a very comfortable one all the same, so they say. You know this chief, then? I have heard to talk of him. Favourable or otherwise? Both. The deuce, and what is this condition? that you are blindfolded and do not take off the bandage until he himself bids you. Franz looked at Gaetano to see if possible what he thought of this proposal. Ah, replied he, guessing Franz's thought, I know this is a serious matter. What should you do in my place? I, who have nothing to lose, I should go. You would accept? 
Yes, were it only out of curiosity. There is something very peculiar about this chief, then. Listen, said Gaetano, lowering his voice. I do not know if what they say is true. He stopped to see if anyone was near. What do they say? That this chief inhabits a cavern, to which the pity palace is nothing. What nonsense, said Franz, reseating himself. It is no nonsense, it is quite true. Kama, the pilot of the St. Ferdinand, went in once, and he came back amazed, vowing that such treasures were only to be heard of in fairy tales. Do you know, observed Franz, that with such stories you make me think of Ali Baba's enchanted cavern? I tell you what I have been told. Then you advise me to accept? Oh, I didn't say that your excellency will do as you please. I should be sorry to advise you in the matter. France pondered the matter for a few moments, concluded that a man so rich could not have any intention of plundering him of what little he had, and seeing only the prospect of a good supper, accepted. Gaetano departed with the reply. France was prudent and wished to learn all he possibly could concerning his host. He turned towards the sailor, who, during this dialogue, had sat gravely plucking the partridges with the air of a man proud of his office, and asking him how these men had landed, as no vessel of any kind was visible. "'Never mind that,' returned the sailor. "'I know their vessel.' "'Is it a very beautiful vessel?' "'I would not wish for a bet to sail round the world.' "'Of what burden is she?' About a hundred tons, but she is built to stand any weather. She is what the English call a yacht. Where was she built? I know not, but my own opinion is she is a Genoese. And how did a leader of smugglers, continued France, venture to build a vessel designed for such a purpose at Genoa? I did not say that the owner was a smuggler, replied the sailor. No, but Gaetano did, I thought. Gaetano had only seen the vessel from a distance. He had not then spoken to anyone. And if this person be not a smuggler, who is he? A wealthy signor who travels for his pleasure. Come, thought Franz, he is still more mysterious, since the two accounts do not agree. What is his name? If you ask him, he says Sinbad the Sailor, but I doubt if it be his real name. Sinbad the Sailor? Yes. And where does he reside? On the sea. What country does he come from? I do not know. Have you ever seen him? Sometimes. What sort of man is he? Your Excellency will judge for yourself. Where will he receive me? No doubt in the subterranean palace Gaetano told you of. Have you never had the curiosity, when you have landed, and found this island deserted, to seek for this enchanted palace? Oh yes, more than once. But always in vain. We examined the grotto all over, but we could never find the slightest trace of any opening. They say that the door is not opened by a key but a magic word. 
Decidedly, muttered Franz, this is an Arabian night's adventure. His Excellency awaits you, said a voice, which he recognized as that of the sentinel. He was accompanied by two of the yacht's crew. Franz drew his handkerchief from his pocket and presented it to the man who had spoken to him. Without uttering a word, they bandaged his eyes with a care that showed their apprehension of his committing some indiscretion. Afterwards, he was made to promise that he would not make the least attempt to raise the bandage. He promised. Then his two guides took his arms, and he went on, guided by them, and preceded by the sentinel. After going about thirty paces, he smelt the appetizing odour of the kid that was roasting, and knew thus that he was passing the bivouac. They then led him on about fifty paces farther, evidently advancing towards that part of the shore where they would not allow Gaetano to go, a refusal he could now comprehend. Presently, by a change in the atmosphere, he knew that they were entering a cave. After going on for a few seconds more, he heard a crackling, and it seemed to him as though the atmosphere again changed and became balmy and perfumed. At length his feet touched on a thick and soft carpet, and his guides let go their hold of him. There was a moment's silence, and then a voice in excellent French, although with a foreign accent, said, Welcome, sir. I beg you will remove your bandage. It may be supposed, then, France did not wait for a repetition of this permission, but took off the handkerchief and found himself in the presence of a man from thirty-eight to forty years of age, dressed in a Tunisian costume, that is to say, a red cap with a long blue silk tassel, a vest of black cloth embroidered with gold, pantaloons of deep red, large and full gaiters of the same colour, embroidered with gold like the vest, and yellow slippers. He had a splendid cashmere round his waist, and a small, sharp and crooked kanjar was passed through his girdle. Although of a paleness that was almost livid, this man had a remarkably handsome face, his eyes were penetrating and sparkling. His nose, quite straight and projecting direct from the brow, was of the pure Greek type, while his teeth, as white as pearls, were set off to admiration by the black moustache that encircled them. His pallor was so peculiar that it seemed to pertain to one who had been long entombed, and who was incapable of resuming the healthy glow and hue of life. He was not particularly tall, but extremely well made, and, like the men of the South, had small hands and feet. But what astonished France, who had treated Gaetano's description as a fable, was the splendour of the apartment in which he found himself. The entire chamber was lined with crimson brocade, worked with flowers of gold. In a recess was a kind of divan, surmounted with a stand of Arabian swords in silver scabbards, and the handles resplendent with gems, from the ceiling hung a lamp of Venetian glass, of beautiful shape and colour, while the feet rested on a turkey carpet in which they sunk to the instep. Tapestry hung before the door by which France had entered, and also in front of another door, leading into a second apartment which seemed to be brilliantly illuminated. The host gave France time to recover from his surprise, and moreover returned look for look, not even taking his eyes off him. Sir, he said after a pause, a thousand excuses for the precautions taken in your introduction hither. But as, during the greater portion of the year, 
this island is deserted. If the secret of this abode were discovered, I should doubtless find on my return my temporary retirement in a state of great disorder, which would be exceedingly annoying, not for the loss it occasioned me, but because I should not have the certainty I now possess of separating myself from all the rest of mankind at pleasure. Let me now endeavour to make you forget this temporary unpleasantness, and offer you what no doubt you did not expect to find here, that is to say, a tolerable supper, and pretty comfortable beds. Ma foi, my dear sir, replied Franz, make no apologies. I have always observed that they bandage people's eyes who penetrate enchanted palaces. For instance, those of Raoul in the Huguenot, and really I have nothing to complain of, for what I see makes me think of the wonders of the Arabian Nights. Alas, I may say with Lucullus, if I could have anticipated the honour of your visit, I would have prepared for it. But such as is my hermitage, it is at your disposal, such as is my supper, it is yours to share, if you will. Ali, is the supper ready? At this moment, the tapestry moved aside, and a Nubian, black as ebony, and dressed in a plain white tunic, made a sign to his master that all was prepared in the dining room. Now, said the unknown to France, I do not know if you are of my opinion, but I think nothing is more annoying than to remain two or three hours together without knowing by name or appellation how to address one another. Pray observe that I too must respect the laws of hospitality to ask your name or title. I only request you to give me one by which I may have the pleasure of addressing you. As for myself, that I may put you at your ease, I tell you that I am generally called Sinbad the Sailor. And I, replied Franz, will tell you, as I only require this wonderful lamp to make me precisely like Aladdin, that I see no reason why at this moment I should not be called Aladdin. That will keep us from going away from the east, whither I am tempted to think I have been conveyed by some good genius. Well then, Signor Aladdin, replied the singular Amphitryon, you heard our repast announced. Will you now take the trouble to enter the dining-room, your humble servant going first, to show the way? At these words, moving aside the tapestry, Simbad preceded his guest. France now looked upon another scene of enchantment. The table was splendidly covered, and once convinced of this important point, he cast his eyes around him. The dining-room was scarcely less striking than the room he had just left. It was entirely of marble, with antique bas-relief of priceless value, and at the four corners of his apartment, which was oblong, were four magnificent statues, having baskets in their hands. These baskets contained four pyramids of most splendid fruit. There were Sicily pine apples, pomegranates from Malaga, oranges from the Balearic Islands, peaches from France, and dates from Tunis. The supper consisted of a, a roast pheasant garnished with Corsican blackbirds, a boar's ham with jelly, a quarter of a kid with tartar sauce, a glorious turbot, and a gigantic lobster. Between these large dishes were smaller ones containing various dainties. The dishes were of silver, and the plates of Japanese china. 
Franz rubbed his eyes in order to assure himself that this was not a dream. Ali alone was present to wait at table and acquitted himself so admirably that the guest complimented his host thereupon. Yes, replied he, while he did the honours of the supper with much ease and grace. Yes, he is a poor devil who is much devoted to me, and does all he can to prove it. He remembers that I saved his life, and, as he has a regard for his head, he feels some gratitude towards me for having kept it on his shoulders. Ali approached his master, took his hand, and kissed it. "'Would it be impertinent, uh, Signor Simbad,' said Franz, "'to ask you the particulars of this kindness?' "'Oh, they are simple enough,' replied the host. "'It seems the fellow had been caught wandering nearer to the harem of the Bay of Tunis.' than etiquette permits to one of his colour, and he was condemned by the bay to have his tongue cut out and his hand and head cut off, the tongue the first day, the hand the second, and the head the third. I always had a desire to have a mute in my service, so learning the day his tongue was cut out, I went to the bay and proposed to give him for Ali a splendid double-barrelled gun which I knew he was very desirous of having. He hesitated a moment, he was so very desirous to complete the poor devil's punishment. But when I added to the gun an English cutlass, with which I had shivered his highness's yatagan to pieces, the bay yielded and agreed to forgive the hand and head, but on condition that the poor fellow never again set foot in Tunis. This was a useless clause in the bargain, for whenever the coward sees the first glimpse of the shores of Africa, he runs down below and can only be induced to appear again, and we're out of sight of that quarter of the globe. France remained a moment silent and pensive, hardly knowing what to think of the half-kindness, half-cruelty with which his host related the brief narrative. And like the celebrated sailor, whose name you have assumed, he said, by way of changing the conversation, you pass your life in travelling. "'Yes, I made a vow at a time when I little thought I should ever be able to accomplish it,' said the unknown with a singular smile. "'And I made some others also which I hope I may fulfil in due season.' Although Sinbad pronounced these words with such calmness, his eyes gave forth gleams of extraordinary ferocity. "'You have suffered a great deal, sir,' said France inquiringly. Sinbad started and looked fixedly at him as he replied, "'What makes you suppose so?' "'Everything,' answered Franz. "'Your voice, your look, your pallid complexion, and even the life you lead.' "'I? I live the happiest life possible, the real life of a pasha. "'I am king of all creation. "'I am pleased with one place and stay there. "'I get tired of it and leave it. "'I am free as a bird and have wings like one. "'My attendants obey my slightest wish.' Sometimes I amuse myself by delivering some bandit or criminal from the bonds of the law. Then I have my mode of dispensing justice, silent and sure, without respite or appeal, which condemns or pardons and which no one sees. Ah, if you had tasted my life, you would not desire any other and would never return to the world unless you had some great project to accomplish there. Revenge, for instance? observed France. The unknown fixed on the young man one of those looks which penetrates into the depths of the heart and thoughts. And why revenge? 
he asked. Because, replied Franz, you seem to me like a man who, persecuted by society, has a fearful account to settle with it. Ah, responded Sinbad, laughing with his singular laugh which displayed his white and sharp teeth. <laughs> you have not guessed rightly. Such as you see me, I am a sort of philosopher, and one day perhaps I shall go to Paris to rival Monsieur Appert and the little man in the blue cloak. And will that be the first time you ever took that journey? Yes, it will. I must seem to you by no means curious, but I assure you that it is not my fault I have delayed it so long. It will happen one day or the other. And do you propose to make this journey very shortly? I do not know. It depends on circumstances, which depend on certain arrangements. I should like to be there at the time you come, and I will endeavour to repay you as far as lies in my power for your liberal hospitality displayed to me at Monte Cristo. I should avail myself of your offer with pleasure, replied the host, but unfortunately if I go there it'll be in all probability incognito. The supper appeared to have been supplied solely for France, for the unknown scarcely touched one or two dishes of the splendid banquet to which his guest did ample justice. Then Ali brought on the dessert, or rather took the baskets from the hands of the statues and placed them on the table. Between the two baskets he placed a small silver cup with a silver cover. The care with which Ali placed this cup on the table roused France's curiosity. He raised the cover and saw a kind of greenish paste, something like preserved angelica, but which was perfectly unknown to him. He replaced the lid, as ignorant of what the cup contained as he was before he had looked at it, and then casting his eyes towards his host, he saw him smile at his disappointment. "'You cannot guess,' said he, "'what there is in that small vase, can you?' "'No, I really cannot.' Well, then, that green preserve is nothing less than the ambrosia which Hebe served at the table of Jupiter. But, replied Franz, this ambrosia, no doubt, in passing through mortal hands, has lost its heavenly appellation and assumed our human name. In vulgar phrase, what may you term this composition, for which, to tell the truth, I do not feel any particular desire. Ah, thus it is that our material origin is revealed, cried Sinbad. We frequently pass so near to happiness without seeing, without regarding it, or if we do see and regard it, yet without recognizing it. Are you a man for the substantials, and is gold your god? Taste this, and the mines of Peru, Guzerat, and Golconda are open to you. Are you a man of imagination, a poet? Taste this, and the boundaries of possibility disappear. The fields of infinite space open to you. You advance free in heart, free in mind, into the boundless realms of unfettered reverie. Are you ambitious, and do you seek after the greatness of the earth? Taste this, and in an hour you will be a king, not a king of a petty kingdom hidden in some corner of Europe like France, Spain, or England, but king of the world, king of the universe, king
king of creation, without bowing at the feet of Satan, you will be king and master of all the kingdoms of the earth. Is it not tempting what I offer you? And is it not an easy thing, since it is only to do thus? Look! At these words he uncovered the small cup which contained the substance so lauded, took a teaspoonful of the magic sweetmeat, raised it to his lips, and swallowed it slowly, with his eyes half shut and his head bent backwards. France did not disturb him whilst he absorbed his favourite sweetmeat, but when he had finished he inquired, "'What then is this precious stuff?' "'Did you ever hear,' he replied, "'of the old man of the mountain "'who attempted to assassinate Philippe Augustus?' "'Of course I have.' "'Well, you know, he reigned over a rich valley "'which was overhung by the mountain "'whence he derived his picturesque name. "'In this valley were magnificent gardens "'planted by Hassan ben Sabah, "'and in these gardens isolated pavilions.' Into these pavilions he admitted the elect, and there, says Marco Polo, gave them to eat a certain herb, which transported them to paradise in the midst of ever-blooming shrubs, ever-ripe fruit, and ever-lovely virgins. What these happy persons took for reality was but a dream. But it was a dream so soft, so voluptuous, so enthralling, that they sold themselves body and soul to him who gave it to them, and obedient to his orders, as to those of a deity, struck down the designated victim, died in torture without a murmur, believing that the death they underwent was but a quick transition to that life of delights, of which the holy herb now before you had given them a slight foretaste. Then, cried Franz, it is hashish, I know that, by name at least. That is it precisely, Signor Aladdin. It is hashish, the purest and most unadulterated hashish of Alexandria, the hashish of Abu Ghor, the celebrated maker, the only man, the man to whom there should be built a palace inscribed with these words, a grateful word to the dealer in happiness. Do you know said Franz. I have a very great inclination to judge for myself of the truth or exaggeration of your eulogies. Judge for yourself, Signor Aladdin. Judge, but do not confine yourself to one trial. Like everything else, we must habituate the senses to a fresh impression, gentle or violent, sad or joyous. There is a struggle in nature against this divine substance, in nature which is not made for joy and clings to pain. Nature subdued must yield in the combat. The dream must succeed to reality, and then the dream reigns supreme. Then the dream becomes life, and life becomes the dream. But what changes occur? It is only by comparing the pains of actual being with the joys of the assumed existence that you would desire to live no longer, but to dream thus forever. When you return to this mundane sphere from your visionary world, you would seem to leave a Neapolitan spring for a Lapland winter, to quit paradise for earth, heaven for hell. Taste the hashish, guest of mine, taste the hashish. 
Francis's only reply was to take a teaspoonful of the marvellous preparation about as much in quantity as his host had eaten, and lift it to his mouth. Diable, he said, after having swallowed the divine preserve, I do not know if the result will be as agreeable as you describe, but the thing does not appear to me as palatable as you say. Because your palate has not yet been attuned to the sublimity of the substances it flavours, tell me the first time you tasted oysters, tea, porter, truffles, and sundry other dainties which you now adore. Did you like them? Could you comprehend how the Romans stuff their pheasants with asafoetida, and the Chinese eat swallows? Nests? Eh? No. Well, it's the same with hashish. Only eat for a week, and nothing in the world will seem to you to equal the delicacy of its flavour, which now appears to you flat and distasteful. Let us now go into the adjoining chamber, which is your apartment, and Ali will bring us coffee and pipes. They both arose, and while he who called himself Sinbad, and whom we have occasionally named so, that we might, like his guest, have some title by which to distinguish him, gave some orders to the servant, Franz entered still another apartment. It was simply yet richly furnished. It was round, and a large divan completely encircled it. Divan, walls, ceiling, floor, were all covered with magnificent skins as soft and downy as the richest carpets. There were heavy-maned lion skins from Atlas, striped tiger skins from Bengal, panther skins from the Cape, spotted beautifully like those that appeared to Dante, bear skins from Siberia, fox skins from Norway, and so on. And all these skins were strewn in profusion, one on the other, so that it seemed like walking over the most mossy turf, or reclining on the most luxurious bed. Both laid themselves down on the divan, Chibuk and jasmine tubes and amber mouthpieces were within reach, and all prepared so that there was no need to smoke the same pipe twice. Each of them took one, which Ali lighted and then retired to prepare the coffee. There was a moment's silence, during which Sinbad gave himself up to thoughts that seemed to occupy him incessantly, even in the midst of his conversation, and Franz abandoned himself to that mute reverie into which we always sink when smoking excellent tobacco, which seems to remove with its fume all the troubles of the mind, and to give the smoker in exchange all the visions of the soul. Ali brought in the coffee. How do you take it? inquired the unknown. In French or Turkish style? Strong or weak? Sugar or non? Cool or boiling? As you please. It's ready in all ways. I'll take it in the Turkish style, replied Franz. And you are right, said his host. It shows you have a tendency for an oriental life. Ah, those orientals. They're the only men who know how to live. As for me, he added with one of those singular smiles which did not escape the young man, when I have completed my affairs in Paris, I shall go and die in the East. And should you wish to see me again, you must seek me at Cairo, Baghdad, or Ispahan. Ma foi, said Franz, it would be the easiest thing in the world, for I feel eagle's wings springing out my shoulders, and with those wings I could make a tour of the world in four and twenty hours. Ah, yes, the hashish is beginning its work, 
Well, unfurl your wings and fly into superhuman regions. Fear nothing. There is a watch over you, and if your wings, like those of Icarus, melt before the sun, we are here to ease your fall. He then said something in Arabic to Ali, who made a sign of obedience and withdrew, but not to any distance. As to France, a strange transformation had taken place in him. All the bodily fatigue of the day, all the preoccupation of mind which the events of the evening had brought on, disappeared as they do at the first approach of sleep, when we are still sufficiently conscious to be aware of the coming of slumber. His body seemed to acquire an airy lightness. His perception brightened in a remarkable manner. His senses seemed to redouble their power. The horizon continued to expand, but it was not the gloomy horizon of vague alarms, and which he had seen before he slept, but a blue, transparent, unbounded horizon, with all the blue of the ocean, all the spangles of the sun, all the perfumes of the summer breeze. Then, in the midst of the songs of his sailors, songs so clear and sonorous that they would have made a divine harmony had their notes been taken down, he saw the island of Monte Cristo, no longer as a threatening rock in the midst of the waves, but as an oasis in the desert. Then, as his boat drew nearer, the songs became louder, for an enchanting and mysterious harmony rose to heaven, as if some Lorelei had decreed to attract the soul thither, or Amphion, the enchanter, intended there to build a city. At length the boat touched the shore, but without effort, without shock, as lips touch lips, and he entered the grotto amidst continued strains of most delicious melody. He descended, or rather seemed to descend, several steps, inhaling the fresh and balmy air, like that which may be supposed to reign around the grotto of Circe, formed from such perfumes as set the mind a-dreaming, and such fires as burn the very senses. And he saw again all he had seen before his sleep from Sinbad, his singular host, to Ali, the mute attendant, then all seemed to fade away, and become confused before his eyes, like the last shadows of the magic lantern before it is extinguished, and he was again in the chamber of statues, lighted only by one of those pale and antique lamps which watch in the dead of the night over the sleep of pleasure. They were the same statues, rich in form, in attraction and poesy, with eyes of fascination, smiles of love and bright and flowing hair. They were Phryne, Cleopatra, Messalina, those three celebrated courtesans. Then among them glided like a pure ray, like a Christian angel in the midst of Olympus, one of those chaste figures, those calm shadows, those soft visions, which seemed to veil its virgin brow before those marble wantons. Then the three statues advanced towards him with looks of love and approached the couch on which he was reposing, their feet hidden in their long white tunics, their throats bare, hair flowing like waves and assuming attitudes which the gods could not resist, but which saints withstood, and looks inflexible and ardent like those which the serpent charms the bird, and then he gave way before looks that held him in a torturing grasp and delighted his senses as with a voluptuous kiss. It seemed to France that he closed his eyes, 
and in a last look about him saw the vision of modesty completely veiled, and then followed a dream of passion like that promised by the prophet to the elect. Lips of stone turned to flame, breasts of ice became like heated lava, so that to France, yielding for the first time to the sway of the drug, love was a sorrow and voluptuousness a torture, as burning mouths were pressed to his thirsty lips, and he was held in cool, serpent-like embraces. The more he strove against this unhallowed passion, the more his senses yielded to its thrall, and at length, weary of a struggle that taxed his very soul, he gave way, and sank back breathless and exhausted beneath the kisses of these marble goddesses and the enchantment of his marvellous dream. End of chapter 31 Chapter 32 The Waking When Franz returned to himself, he seemed still to be in a dream. He thought himself in a sepulchre into which a ray of sunlight in pity scarcely penetrated. He stretched forth his hand and touched stone. He rose to his seat and found himself lying on his bornous in a bed of dry heather, very soft and odoriferous. The vision had fled, and as if the statues had been but shadows from the tomb, they had vanished at his waking. He advanced several paces towards the point whence the light came, and to all the excitement of his dream succeeded the calmness of reality. He found that he was in a grotto, went towards the opening, and through a kind of fanlight saw a blue sea and an azure sky. The air and water were shining in the beams of the morning sun. On the shore the sailors were sitting, chatting and laughing, and at ten yards from them the boat was at anchor, undulating gracefully on the water. There for some time he enjoyed the fresh breeze which played on his brow, and listened to the dash of the waves on the beach that left against the rocks a lace of foam as white as silver. He was for some time without reflection or thought for the divine charm which is in the things of nature, especially after a fantastic dream. Then gradually this view of the outer world, so calm, so pure, so grand, reminded him of the elusiveness of his vision, and once more awakened memory. He recalled his arrival on the island, his presentation to a smuggler chief, a subterranean palace full of splendour, an excellent supper, and a spoonful of hashish. It seemed, however, even in the very face of open day, that at least a year had elapsed since all these things had passed, so deep was the impression made in his mind by the dream, and so strong a hold had it taken over his imagination. Thus, every now and then, he saw in fancy amid the sailors, seated on a rock or undulating in the vessel, one of the shadows which had shared his dream with looks and kisses. Otherwise his head was perfectly clear, and his body refreshed. He was free from the slightest headache. On the contrary, he felt a certain degree of lightness, a faculty for absorbing the pure air and enjoying the bright sunshine more vividly than ever. He went gaily up to the sailors, who rose as soon as they perceived him, and the patron, accosting him, said, the Signor Sinbad has left his compliments for your excellency, and desires us to express the regret he feels at not being able to take his leave in person. But he trusts you will excuse him, as very important business calls him to Malaga. 
So then, Gaetano, said Franz, this is then all reality. There exists a man who has received me in this island, entertained me right royally, and is departed while I was asleep. He exists as certainly as that you may see his small yacht with all her sails spread, and if you will use your glass, you will in all probability recognize your host in the midst of his crew. So saying, Gaetano pointed in a direction in which a small vessel was making sail towards the southern point of Corsica. Franz adjusted his telescope and directed it towards the yacht. Gaetano was not mistaken. At the stern, the mysterious stranger was standing up, looking towards the shore, and holding a spyglass in his hand. He was attired as he had been on the previous evening, and waved his pocket handkerchief to his guest in token of adieu. Franz returned the salute by shaking his handkerchief as an exchange of signals. After a second, a slight cloud of smoke was seen at the stern of the vessel, which rose gracefully as it expanded in the air, and then Franz heard a slight report. "'There, do you hear?' observed Gaetano. "'He is bidding you adieu.' The young man took his carbine and fired it in the air, but without any idea that the noise could be heard at the distance which separated the yacht from the shore. "'What are your Excellency's orders?' inquired Gaetano. "'In the first place, light me a torch.' "'Ah, yes, I understand,' replied the patron, "'to find the entrance to the enchanted apartment. "'With much pleasure, Your Excellency. "'If it would amuse you, I will get you the torch you ask for. "'But I too have had the idea you have had, "'and two or three times the same fancy has come over me. "'But I have always given it up. "'Giovanni, light a torch,' he added, "'and give it to His Excellency.' Giovanni obeyed. Franz took the lamp and entered the subterranean grotto, followed by Gaetano. He recognized the place where he had awakened by the bed of heather that was there, but it was in vain that he carried his torch all around the exterior surface of the grotto. He saw nothing, unless that by traces of smoke others had before him attempted the same thing, and like him in vain, yet he did not leave a foot of this granite wall as impenetrable as futurity, without strict scrutiny. He did not see a fissure without introducing the blade of his hunting sword into it, or a projecting point on which he did not lean and press in the hopes it would give way. All was vain, and he lost two hours in his attempts, which were at last utterly useless. At the end of this time he gave up his search, and Gaetano smiled. When France appeared again on the shore, the yacht only seemed like a small white speck on the horizon. He looked again through his glass, but even then he could not distinguish anything. Gaetano reminded him that he had come for the purpose of shooting goats, which he had utterly forgotten. He took his fowling piece and began to hunt over the island with the air of a man who is fulfilling a duty rather than enjoying a pleasure, and at the end of a quarter of an hour he had killed a goat and two kids. These animals, though wild and agile as chamois, were too much like domestic goats, and France could not consider them as game. Moreover, other ideas, much more enthralling, occupied his mind. Since the evening before, he had really been the hero of one of the tales of the Thousand and One Nights, 
and he was irresistibly attracted toward the grotto. Then, in spite of the failure of his first search, he began a second, after having told Gaetano to roast one of the two kids. The second visit was a long one, and when he returned, the kid was roasted and the repast ready. Franz was sitting on the spot where he was on the previous evening when his mysterious host had invited him to supper, and he saw the little yacht, now like a seagull on the wave, continuing her flight toward Corsica. Why, he remarked to Gaetano, you told me that Signor Simbad was going to Malaga, while it seems he is in the direction of Porto Vecchio. Don't you remember, said the patron, I told you that among the crew there were two Corsican brigands. True, and he is going to land them, added Franz. Precisely so, replied Gaetano. Uh, he is one who fears neither God nor Satan, they say, and would at any time run fifty leagues out of his course to do a poor devil a service. But such service as these might involve him with the authorities of the country in which he practices this kind of philanthropy, said Franz. And what cares he for that, replied Gaetano with a laugh, or any authorities? He smiles at them. Let them try to pursue him. Why, in the first place, his yacht is not a ship, but a bird, and he would beat any frigate three knots in every nine, and if he were to throw himself on the coast, why, is he not certain of finding friends everywhere? It was perfectly clear that the Signor Sinbad, Francis' host, had the honour of being in excellent terms with the smugglers and bandits along the whole coast of the Mediterranean, and so enjoyed exceptional privileges. As to France, he had no longer any inducement to remain at Monte Cristo. He had lost all hope of detecting the secret of the grotto. He consequently dispatched his breakfast, and, his boat being ready, he hastened on board, and they were soon under way. At the moment the boat began her course, they lost sight of the yacht, as it disappeared in the gulf of Porto Vecchio. With it was effaced the last trace of the preceding night, and then supper... Sinbad, hashish, statues, all became a dream for France. The boat sailed on all day and all night, and next morning, when the sun rose, they had lost sight of Monte Cristo. When France had once again set foot on shore, he forgot, for the moment at least, the events which had just passed, while he finished his affairs of pleasure at Florence, and then thought of nothing but how he should rejoin his companion, who was awaiting him at Rome. He set out, and on the Saturday evening reached the Eternal City by the mail-coach. An apartment, as we have said, had been retained beforehand, and thus he had but to go to Signor Pastrini's hotel. But this was not so easy a matter, for the streets were thronged with people, and Rome was already a prey to that low and feverish murmur which precedes all great events. And at Rome there are four great events in every year. The Carnival, Holy Week, Corpus Christi, and the Feast of St. Peter. All the rest of the year the city is in that state of dull apathy between life and death, which renders it similar to a kind of station between this world and the next, a sublime spot, a resting place full of poetry and character, and at which France had already halted five or six times, and at each time found it more marvellous and striking. At last he made his way through the mob, which was continually increasing and getting more and more turbulent, 
and reached the hotel. On his first inquiry, he was told, with the impertinence peculiar to hired hackney coachmen and innkeepers with their houses full, that there was no room for him at the Hotel de Londres. Then he sent his card to Signor Pispastrini and asked for Albert de Morcef. This plan succeeded, and Signor Pastrini himself ran to him, excusing himself for having made His Excellency wait, scolding the waiters, taking the candlestick from the porter, who was ready to pounce on the traveller and was about to lead him to Albert, when Morcerf himself appeared. The apartment consisted of two small rooms and a parlour. The two rooms looked on to the street, a fact which Signor Pastrini commented upon as an inappreciable advantage. The rest of the floor was hired by a very rich gentleman who was supposed to be a Sicilian or Maltese, but the host was unable to decide to which of the two nations the traveller belonged. Very good, Signor Pastrini, said Franz, but we must have some supper instantly, and a carriage for tomorrow, and the following days. As to supper, replied the landlord, you shall be served immediately. But as for the carriage... What as to the carriage? exclaimed Albert. Come, come, Signor Pastrini. No joking. We must have a carriage. Sir, replied the host, we will do all in our power to procure you one. This is all I can say. And when shall we know? inquired Franz. Tomorrow morning, answered the innkeeper. Oh, the deuce! Then we shall pay the more, that's all. I see plainly enough. At Drake's or Aaron's one pays twenty-five lira for common days, and thirty or thirty-five lira a day more for Sundays and feast days, and five lira a day more for extras. That will make forty, and there's an end of it. I am afraid if we offer them double, that we shall not procure a carriage. Then they must put horses to mine. It is a little worse for the journey, but that's no matter. There are no horses. Albert looked at Franz like a man who hears a reply he does not understand. Do you understand that, my dear Franz? No horses, he said. But can't we have post-horses? They have been all hired this fortnight, and there are none left but those absolutely requisite for posting. What are we to say to this? asked Franz. I say that when a thing completely surpasses my comprehension, I am accustomed not to dwell on that thing, but to pass to another. Is supper ready, Signor Pastrini? Yes, Your Excellency. Well then, let us sup. But the carriage and the horses, said Franz. Be easy, my dear boy. They will come in due season. It is only a question of how much shall be charged for them, Morcerf then with that delighted philosophy which believes that nothing is impossible to a full purse or well-lined pocket-book, supped, went to bed, slept soundly, and dreamed he was racing all over Rome at carnival time in a coach with six horses. End of chapter 32 Sinbad. Sinbad the Sailor. Hmm. So, we need to go back to chapter 31. I think we can all agree that Sinbad the Sailor is Dantes in his new and improved by riches form, 
right? Enough hints were dropped, even without Dumas coming out and saying, oh, and by the way, here's Edmond. There were enough little hints that got tossed in our path. So we now have another alter ego. And we were introduced to Sinbad the Sailor in the letter that he wrote to Julie Morel. But this is the first time we've really seen him in action, dressed in Turkish clothing, pale, but nonetheless coming across as very exotic. And his accent is kind of foreign-ish. And Franz is really quite taken by him and this amazing abode he has created for himself. The rugs and the feast and the Nubian servant? What now? That was one of the reasons why I wanted to keep track of the stories. Because the story of how Sinbad the Sailor winds up hiring Ali, or I guess buying Ali, is an important one. And I want to comment on Ali more right now because I feel like we really kind of need to, but I'm just going to ask you to trust me. Because I found it quite disturbing, the story of, you know, I always thought it would be great to have a mute in my service, and here I got an opportunity to get one. Seems so bloodthirsty and cold and horribly manipulative and Machiavellian, and this is not the Edmond that we know and love. Plus, this is being written by Alexandre Dumas, whose father was black. So how does this all compute? I promise you we will get answers, some answers, before the book is over. So that's one. Two, the way France is brought to the island is worth going back and listening to again. Watching what is done and shown and what we don't hear and don't see of getting France on the island. So that's two. Three is the green paste. Hashish. There was a club at this time, Club des Hashishin, Club of the Hashish Eaters, basically. And people who went to this club were Victor Hugo, Alexandre Dumas, Baudelaire, de Balzac. All the big-name writers at the time were going and hanging out at this place. So this was very au courant at the time. And I thought Sinbad went on a bit much about the effects of the stuff. But there is also a reason for that as well. Eventually, we'll get to it. So Dumas really is laying a lot of groundwork right now. Some of it may feel pretty heavy-handed, but I promise you Dumas is not doing it without reason. There are points he will be making over the course of the rest of the book. So we got a lot of information today. And now we are in Rome, and the, the conversations about Rome are kind of interesting. People getting attacked and bandits and people being robbed so close to Rome and now it's carnival and everybody's crazy and there's no carriages and it does a great job of creating an environment that we are going to be immersed in in our next chapter next week. So I am going to leave you to go back and listen to again to parts of chapter 31. But before we go, and because there's been such a confluence of things happening in the United States lately with the the problems in in Minneapolis and and Dallas and Louisiana and that kind of triangulating with the chapter where Ali is introduced and with the book Kindred 
by Octavia Butler, which I'm reading for the first time. Actually, I'm listening to it. And Kim Staunton, who does the reading, honestly, who does the performance, she's marvelous. And if you haven't ever read Kindred before, please do. If you don't have time to read it, please listen to it. It's referred to as a science fiction story the same way that The Time Traveler's Wife was referred to as a science fiction story, in that something science fiction-y happens, but it's not Ray Bradbury or Isaac Asimov. The science fiction-y part is not the main point. The humanity is the main point. And Octavia Butler did an incredible job of recreating a past that I certainly don't want to ever see again in our lifetime. But I think having a clearer understanding of how that past could or would affect people of our world today, if we went back into it, I think it's worth taking a look at. And to that end, on Facebook over the last week, a student of mine, who I've actually talked about before, he was JD, one of my favorite students ever. I will post a picture of us when we got a chance to have breakfast together a couple years ago while I was still in Washington, D.C., and you'll see what a goofball he is. We, <laughs> we had a lot of fun when he was in class. We have a lot of fun now. And of course, now he's a grown-up. He's 30. He's got a kid. He's got two kids, his wife and two kids, and a lovelier person you could not ask to spend time with. And after the shootings in Dallas, he posted an essay on Facebook, and I wrote to him and asked him if he would read it so that I could play it for you today. And he did. And it's so important, I think, so important that the day that I received the audio from him, I had the boys listen to it. And both of them had exactly the same reaction, which is, oh, I get it. And I hadn't gotten it before. And his words are going to stick with me. Part of the reason that I think they were able to say they got it was because he's just an eloquent writer and it's beautiful. But he was downtown when the shootings were happening. He was downtown standing next to friends who are police officers, white police officers. And it's his open dialogue back and forth with a friend about a subject that we almost never get to see the inside of. And by that, I mean what it's like to be black in America, but also what it's like to be a cop in America. Those are two stories that are rarely opened to the population. Octavia Butler's book opens up what it would be like to be a slave because the, the woman's voice who you travel with, she's a professional adult woman. It's easy to identify with her. She's modern and educated and a person. And if you become a slave, you lose all of that. And so if you've self-identified with her at the beginning of the book, which you do, then now you get to self-identify with a slave in a way that you probably haven't before. Seeing inside what it's like to be a cop in America, it was made more clear to me after 9-11 when I got a chance to talk to some of the, the firemen and the police officers who were helping us at our school, but also who had been involved on September 11th, and that the, the training that you go through in order to be the one who runs towards the gunfire, towards the burning building, into the burning building, that kind of training makes you different. Because at that point, you're being trained that everything is a potential threat. And being Black in America, you are very visible. 
I think I've mentioned before my, my friend who I worked with in Los Angeles when I was working at the small production company on Rodeo Drive. We were in Beverly Hills and she had to be careful about when she left work because if she got caught driving while black, DWB, at night in our neighborhood where we worked, Rodeo Drive, she's going to get stopped. And I was with her when she got stopped. Didn't matter. And those are three realities that I do not live inside. I am not African-American. I am not a slave. And I'm not a cop. But as was true when I was teaching high school, and as I think is true of all people who love great literature, those moments when we can cross a barrier and start to understand what it would be like to be Jane Eyre, religious, tough, opinionated, little, and poor, or being Victor's creature, abandoned, repulsive, but with a heart and a soul, or Darcy, restrained by training and upbringing and class and not knowing how to, where to, if it's possible to express love, much less experience it, with someone who is so alive when you've spent your entire life being so constrained. Those moments of, of transcendence are really important to me. And this essay was another one of those moments. I hope it's as good for you, too. Here we go. A few days ago, while standing outside an event at Life in Deep Elm in Dallas, a friend of mine who's a DPD officer asked me straight up, so what do you think about all this shooting stuff? Now let me back up. This officer, we'll call him Popo J. We've worked together for almost five years. He's a friend and we've developed a relationship that allows us to ask questions and expect honest answers, even if we don't agree with the response. That said, when he asked those 10 words, I still find myself taken aback. A tad furtive, I responded, well, how do you feel about it all? What progressed for the next 45 uninterrupted minutes was nothing short of open and honest communication by people who were at times found on opposite sides of an ideological spectrum. He explained the legitimate fear that he has when he approaches certain areas, certain situations, certain people based entirely on past and repeated experience. He explained that every day he has to make a choice to not allow those past people and experiences to define how he approaches the next person how he has to make it a point in his mind to not paint with a broad stroke, that he knows every person in her neighborhood isn't the last person he arrested. He explained how it breaks his heart to know that he would in one breath arrest a perpetrator and in the next throw his body on top of them or rush into their house if they call 911 needing assistance. He explained that he's been spit at and maligned for nothing other than wearing a uniform and his and many of his friends' only hope and desire is to protect the entirety of his city from those that would do it harm. He asked why people hate him. Why people weren't willing to have actual conversations. Why people only saw the blue and then got upset if it were intimated that officers only saw the black or the brown or the white or the tan. He asked about the lack of nuance in conversation and assumption, and he acknowledged his own nuanceless assumptions as well. I explained the system of white privilege, the insidious and almost imperceptible underlying premise behind so many decisions that have been made over the years. I explained that it was not just about individual instances of being maligned in the now, but a historic and occasionally micro-oppression that dates back to the foundation of our country where certain groups of people were seen as less so that others could be, see, have more. 
I explained that the people in the neighborhoods where he patrols have distrust because their father had distrust because his father had been sprayed with fire hoses and his father had been refused the right to vote and his father had been denied basic access to what he needed to survive and his father had been a slave and his father had been a king. I explained that his series of current experience weren't the first or only issue. They were the beginning of a match strike to a pile of tinder over 200 years in the building. I thought about the move bombing of 85 or how redlining created communities that turned into ghettos. I remembered my veteran family member who, while on a traffic stop, was told, you, you understand how it is, in reference to the severe questioning they received. I thought back to the many times I've been called the whitest black guy I know or not really black by people of all ideological, sociological, and cultural backgrounds. I thought to the times the jokes immediately turned racial because we apparently had nothing else in common to laugh about or discuss. I thought about how I've been guilty of feeling the need to code switch so that I'll be accepted by my friends and by my family. I thought about all of us and we talked. We talked openly and honestly. I didn't understand or agree with everything he said and he the same. We didn't argue, didn't debate, we discussed. Then we hugged and I went inside. Two hours later I came back out. The sun had set and there was an eerie tension in the air that I couldn't quite put my finger on. Somewhere hidden between the folds of this blanket of Texas heat, there was a strange energy to the city, and I didn't know why. Jokingly, I snuck up behind Popo K, his partner, and stood there for a while as he was on the phone. He never turned around. Finally, tired of standing, I said, For a CIT officer, you're not very observant. He turned around and grimly said there was something going on downtown. We're hearing reports over the radio of shots fired. Over the next hour, I stood on those steps with him and listened as we heard his friends get shot at. I watched as Jay and Kay realized that two, now four, now six, now ten of their friends were shot. I watched two of the strongest men I know who face danger head on every day find themselves in the tension that can only come from wanting to be somewhere, to do something, and realizing that they can't. Someone asked them what was going on, and Popo Jay explained that they were barricaded subjects, possibly a sniper, and four officers at the time had been shot, two dead. I watched one guy in the group chuckle. Jay walked away, tears in his eyes. Eventually I left. I had things to do and a barrage of emails, text messages, and missed calls to respond to, telling people I was okay. I hugged Jay and Kay and told them that I loved them, that if they were ever in a situation where the whole day was shit and they felt like everyone in the city hated them, to tape a note to their steering wheel that said, Damani loves me. Maybe the reminder that one guy somewhere in the city loves them and was open to the dialogue as long as they were would help. Maybe. After the event was over, Jay and Kay got in their squad car and headed downtown to do something. They ended up standing in front of a 7-Eleven, protecting it from looters, as they lobbed insults at them and said that their friends deserved it. They left there at 4.30 a.m. They'd been at work since 6.30 a.m. They came back at 7.30 a.m. Answers aren't easy, and we won't find them this week. The problems we face aren't simple, and the cause of oppression won't be uprooted in the next day or month or year. The assumption by some officers that dark is dangerous is mirrored by the equally insidious assumption that blue is bad. To play to either camp is reductive and arrogant and assumes that any of us understand the sum total of any other's experiences. It assumes that your worldview and experience is the lens through which everyone else sees, but leaves no room for them to learn to see through it. It wrongly paints people in a negative light simply because they have not walked the streets of your city in your shoes and haven't experienced its highs and lows the way that you have. It makes enemies out of ignorant people without giving them room to shed their ignorance and becoming intelligent to my, your, their situation. It makes me them and you they. I love you. Or as one of the smartest men I know, my cousin Dean Talbert says, God loves you and so do I. 
Be at peace, Dallas. If you like getting free audiobooks with benefits every week, please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash craftlet. There are rewards waiting for you beyond, you know, the free podcast. You can also subscribe to our premium streaming audio by tapping the red lock when you are looking at the app or at the show notes at craftlet.libsyn.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for a premium download subscription by following the links in the right-hand sidebar at craftlet.com. And if it's easier for you, you can always subscribe and review at iTunes and at Stitcher Radio. Like us on Facebook, support us at Patreon, and come with us on tour. For nine years, Craftlet has been kept going by the support of you, the listener. And for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on 